Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Doug Padgett. With regards to biography, the first thing Doug would want me to say is that he's a novice ultra marathoner that right now would probably like to be going for a run. He's also the founding pastor of Solomon's Porch, a holistic missional Christian community in Minneapolis, Minnesota. He's also a speaker, a writer, his own three businesses in Minneapolis, and he is a podcaster and live streamer. And I asked Doug to be on the podcast to talk about one of his most recent podcasts called Untrumped, where he is a progressive Christian pastor sought out a pastor who one year into the Trump presidency still supported Donald J. Trump. He found one in Texas, Adam Schindler, and they did seven podcasts together. They were fascinating, and I wanted to talk with Doug about the experience. I give you my friend, Doug Paget. Doug, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. This is a real honor. Well, it's the honor's all mine, my friend. And congratulations to you, by the way. You had been sidelined running for a while. I know you're a pastor, a writer, speaker, podcaster, live streamer, but I, I've known for years you've been an avid runner and you were sidelined for a while. And congratulations being able to get back at it. Oh, I, I appreciate that at the deepest level. Thank you. Uh, yeah, for one, almost a full year, all of t- 2017, um, my hip was so bad that I couldn't run. And then I had hip surgery in July. And on the six-month-to-the-day mark, I uh, was able to get out and see how my hip was feeling for running and felt good. And I, so I've run twice, and I'm going to go do it again when we're done with this. And uh, I just feel like um, I'm back, um, back to being a runner, and it's a super big deal. So I appreciate that deeply. Thank you. Yeah. And Doug, you do a regular live stream slash podcast. You get some great guests, and, and I mean— I, one thing I think we have in common, it was sort of an eclectic kind of guest pool, which a lot of people don't do. I mean, and, and understandably why. I mean, sometimes you want to just interview, you know, people who are millennials and fans of Buffy the Vampire Slayer or, yeah, you know, right. people that uh, wish that, you know, that, that collect G.I. Joe with a Kung Fu adjustable grip or whatever, which so there's a niche thing. But, you know, other people are doing kind of a broadcasting model, which you kind of do. But I was really struck by something you did uh, a couple months ago. You started this podcast called Untrumped. And actually, I think I was on an email list where you asked some people, hey, look, I'd like to find another pastor yeah. who mm-hmm. is a Trump supporter, and I'd like to do a sort of focused series of dialogues mm-hmm. about this, about about how somebody... And I, my, I mean, tell me if I got this right. You, your, your interest was, look, I want to know a year out. I don't want to know someone that just voted for Trump, right? Yeah. Because, like, the New York Times did has done a series of op-eds, right, on people that voted for Trump and regret it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's been some really interesting, actually, op-eds mm-hmm. in it. This, you were looking for someone that voted for Trump and was still a Trump supporter. Yeah. And you found one in Texas in a man named Adam Schindler. I did. I did. And, and Adam came. Did you to- ever think of, of, like, opening the segments? Like, all right, let's go with Schindler's list. Uh it, of it, reasons of Trump. <laughs> literally the last 10 seconds there, uh, when you were talking, I was like, don't make a Schindler's List joke because I've, it is, it has been the hardest thing to not make a Schindler's List joke, uh, the whole time. Remember that Seinfeld with like, Jerry, you made out during yeah. Schindler's List. 
<laughs> That's right. Yeah, I've always said that. Like, I saw Schindler's List. I didn't think it was that funny. I don't know if anybody appreciated about it. Yeah. Uh, I actually never did see the movie. But yeah, but with Adam, uh, he came via recommendation of a mutual friend. Uh, and that was important to me because um, what I wanted to do in that conversation was to f- meet someone that I didn't already know. So I, I've tr- I tried to make that clear when we were doing the seven episode series that uh, I know people who voted for Donald Trump. I was trying to find someone I didn't already know so that we didn't have other relational dynamics in play uh, and wanted to get to know a stranger who saw the world as uh, or approached the world as a pastor or church leader or something like that, because that's the avenue I was coming from, that I would have to get to know in uh, real time in front of other people on this live streaming podcast so that our our relationship would literally develop uh, as we were talking live in front of people. And, and I knew that was a, a, a really high high bar to reach, right? Like, how do you find someone who, first of all, could be articulate uh, about why they voted for Trump and are a continuous supporter of Trump and someone who's comfortable doing that live in front of other people and wants to also become uh, uh, a friend? Uh, like, I feel like there was one person on the planet and uh, stumbled onto it and it was Adam and, and we really have become uh, uh, good conversation partners and, and friends through the, through the process. So we did very little uh, preparation Midweek, we would exchange a few things and say, I think we should talk this way or that way. We would just turn the cameras on, um, and we were both live streaming and both recording it. The material was owned by each of us 100%. We could do whatever we wanted with it. Um, so we were in each other's um, mercies at that at that point, and off we went. So we did seven weeks of uh, Thursday evening conversations at 9 o'clock Central Time. And uh, tried to. The goal was for me to try to understand a person who voted for Donald Trump and was still a supporter of Donald Trump, to the degree that I could explain to someone else his perspective. I wasn't trying to agree with him or not agree with him. wasn't trying to convince him of anything. The project was: could I grow? Could I grow in my understanding of why and who he is to the point that I could could take his um, side in explaining to someone else how he views the world and why he supports Donald Trump. Do you think that's a prerequisite that if we could get that, that down more would change our public life? I mean, I remember I had a graduate professor, PhD program at Princeton Seminary, Max Stackhouse used to edit the Christian Century. And there were times where I would express something mm. and he would say it back to me. I was like, yes, exactly, exactly. And he would say, I completely disagree with you. Yeah. But he was able to to mirror back to me what I was saying mm-hmm. in a way that I could sign off on it. Mm-hmm. and didn't feel at all misrepresented. And then he would go and tell me where he, he disagreed. I mean, you just never see that, right, in public life. I mean, like, you, you know, you don't go on cable news to see that happen, right? I mean, it's not... So, I mean, how much would that change public life and how... I mean, was it challenging to do it? it yeah, so I think both of those things are important. One it is very challenging to do it. Not, not because Adam was not understandable, right? There was no... He, Adam wasn't lacking something that made it hard for me to comprehend him. What made it hard for me to, when it was hard for me to comprehend him, was that I was having to let go of a whole lot of assumptions that I held to about the, the, what I determined to be important or not, 
to let those be set aside so that I could hear what he thought was important without feeling, for me, partly my temperament and personality, but also I think just as a human being, I didn't want to lose myself in it, right? So I was trying to be careful to say that um, I, it's not that I have to uh, had to say, well, maybe you're right. I, I didn't. I was glad if he was right. That would be fine. If he's right about things, fantastic. Glad. Um, but I didn't want that to be a prerequisite for the understanding of him, right? The, the, the ability, and I've gotten better at this as I've gotten older in my life and practiced more and more times of, man, how do you hear someone really deeply, see the validity of their argument and disagree with it if you do? disagree with it. That's, that's really hard. And I do think it would change a whole lot of conversations if we were to start with only have, uh, only have feelings about, only have negative feelings about a perspective if you know and care for someone who holds that perspective. Yeah. T.S. Eliot said that, that every theory is true in a certain, in, in, in any, in certain given context, you know, wow. no matter how small that context, nice. somebody wouldn't have come up with a theory if it didn't make sense. To me. They, then he said tongue in cheek. That's why schizophrenia is not so much a disease, but you know, a philosophical position, but you know, like the, the world makes sense to you there, you know, like, it's a, and so that is right. I mean, so it's, you're kind of saying that unless you can step into their world and at least draw a map of it, draw a picture that somebody mm-hmm. else could navigate it if they want to step in, then, then really you're not poised to uh, come to points where uh, of, of meaningful disagreement if it's not preceded by a, a real understanding. Right, a, a real understanding. And, and, the, and I think it's empathy, maybe that's, that's what people mean, but maybe not. Like maybe I don't have to have had his experience um, to be able to say, uh, um, as close as I can, I get what you're saying. And what, what, I've real, what I realized was happening when we were live um, was, and you, I think you'll get this, Scott, both for lots of your profession, but also being a podcaster, there's a, there's a certain part of your personality that comes to life when you're live in front of strangers and you're doing some sort of internet thing and you know it's going to hang around. Like you filter differently and, and you say different things than you might otherwise say. And you also he, listen differently and you hear differently. So what I was noticing was happening was, wow, I, I'm in a really different way of listening to him right now because I realize that we have one hour and I need to say something when he's done. And I wouldn't do that if we were just sitting around having a beer in his living room and we were just talking. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't feel like, I don't know, I, I should say something in 42 seconds. Uh, and that started to interfere. So what I had to say to myself was, could I consider his thoughts over the course of the next week and sit with them uh, to the same degree that I think he was sitting with them? So in, in other words, I didn't get to say, I understand what you're saying, and now let's move on. It was, I'm going to have to sit with this all week long and let it keep showing up again. And that's why I think it's hard for a lot of us is because we don't feel like we have the emotional, mental, or uh, actual time and space in our life to be considering a whole lot of other ideas that uh, we don't actually want to hold. Like It was a real commitment uh, of time and effort to hold that opinion uh, in my purview uh, over the course of a of a week, and then uh, thereby, you know, two two months. 
Yeah, and especially if, if you're someone that's sort of, for instance, I know like you, you've been politically involved pretty much since I've known you. Didn't you run for office? I did. Yeah, I, I did not receive the nomination for from the Democratic Party to become a state legislator. So I like to say I was more like Hillary Clinton in 2008 than I was like Hillary Clinton in 2016. But so I didn't get the nomination to be the to be the candidate. But I tried to run for office, and I'm thinking and you were about more it again. Like Larry Strange. Than Roy Moore. <laughs> That's right. Well, on that, on that, <laughs> Wait a minute, yeah. another just just ways, by not getting ways. the nomination, but in other ways, you know, Roy ways. Moore and I. Wait, so, so you, so I, isn't that even more challenging? Because it, 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 it's one thing if you're trying to understand someone that's got a perspective on something that you're not particularly mm-hmm. passionate about, mm-hmm. but then you sort of you you add what goes on with your neurons and synapses, your feeling, you mentioned when. I mean, a lot of stuff is firing when you're talking about something you care deeply about. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It's the I, it's I, I like to say there's there's two uh, continuums you're measuring on the how much about it, how much about a topic or idea or thought do you know, and then the other continuum is how much do you care, and you can have a very low amount of knowing and a high amount of caring, uh, which is where I was in that situation. Like I really cared about the answers here and I, uh, and I didn't know. And sometimes you have a high amount of knowledge about something deep understanding, but you just don't care very much. And that's what puts us into a lot of conflict in relationships is the amount of caring there is about something. So, and we tend to think we're making arguments about what do you know, but we're really making arguments more often about how much should you, or do you care about something? So that's clearly what was happening in the conversation between Adam and I, we weren't having an understand a difficulty understanding each other. I don't think, I think we were having a trouble, trouble giving validity to why do you care about that? Like of all the things, man, why is that the thing that you care about? That that's um, and if you're a certain kind of temperament, like I am, uh, having people uh, be passionate about things that I'm passionate about is part of my temperament. So it was just firing all kinds of uh, all kinds of sensibilities. You're an eight on the Enneagram, right? I'm, I'm an eight, yeah. The challenger. I, I think so, I heard somebody say once that, that their daughter was an eight, and their daughter said, it's the only Enneagram type for whom the golden rule is not true. I treat other people exactly like I want to be treated. Yeah. In my face, come That's on, right. engage me. Like, people don't That's do right. it. That's right. Push back, say something. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The, the other thing that was great about it, and I would encourage people to do this, was we had an agreed upon time frame. We said we're going to talk for seven weeks, one in one hour segments. Maybe it was just us, but I think this could benefit an awful lot of people. It's it's what happens when someone sees like a therapist or a spiritual director, or they go to a a, a, a physical therapist or something. Having that appointment where at this time on this day for this duration of time over this amount over the span of time, you're going to talk about these things causes you to be present to that topic in a way that's different than if it just is happening on the fly. So I've become a real fan of that. I'm going to try to do it with my podcast too, is keep a number of serial uh, conversations happening, uh, trying to find more ways to do that because I think that's essential to the act of listening is that I knew I could be present for that period of time. It would linger with me all week and I wouldn't have to revisit it until next Thursday at nine o'clock. But also I knew I'd get to revisit it Thursday at nine o'clock. It was really, really uh, a powerful experience. And in Adam Schindler, you didn't just find a Trump supporter. I mean, you found somebody that was in some interesting ways, integral 
to the machine, yeah. to the victory, to the campaign. Can you say a little bit about Adam's background? I mean, he worked for a tech company, right? That was yeah. helping. Yeah, part of what Trump made campaign. Adam a fascinating pick was not only his own personal commitment to uh, to uh, supporting Trump for his own personal reasons, which people should listen to the series if they want to hear it. And when you get into episodes five and seven, it's really great. Uh, I mean, they all are, but you really get a re- big reveal in those in those um, at those points. But Adam had worked for. During before the nomination process, and that year before, he worked for the social media company that had the Trump account. Ultimately, that group broke off from the company that he worked for and was hired by the RNC and and became a separate organization. But the the people that made all the Facebook ads that was Adam. Oh, I thought you. Meant, I thought that was the FSB. <laughs> <laughs> His Russian is flawless, by the way. Exactly. Uh, and uh, we, we joked a lot about that. And it was really, I mean, I, I fully believe that, that Trump's campaign at some deep level was, was colluding. But it was interesting talking to Adam. He's like, look, at least in the early days, I can assure you that there was no clue. I, I was doing that work. I was the one. He would point over in our conversation to the computer behind him, and he said, the ads, uh, the web ads that were going out that were interviews of Donald Trump, I edited those on that computer. I promise you there was no – if there was collusion, I would have – it was – he was in at that deep level. And I found that to be really fascinating. In other words, he had more uh, commitments to his support of Donald Trump that came because of circumstance than I did. And that was helpful for me, just in, in the question you asked earlier on, like how much you care, uh, you know, if, if you have your own um, dog in the hunt. He had a dog in the hunt. You know, he worked really hard to get Donald Trump elected and really wanted him to get elected and invested personal and professional work, uh, work into making that happen. So that was, that was uh, a really, uh, real great gift. And I was so appreciative of his willingness to to share that and talk about that in the course of our conversations. No, so could you just say, you know, in in Adam's words, I mean, what if you could summarize, you know, in brief his his case, you know, to somebody who hasn't listened to the podcast, you know, what would you say coming away? What did you learn how to say in his voice? So let me give a little caveat to that. My big grievance that I asked him to answer for me was how, the reason I wanted to be a pastor and specifically if possible, an evangelical pastor is I had a very hard time reconciling how evangelical leaders could become a supporter of Donald Trump in particular, not how you could be a conservative or, or how you'd be a Republican. I get that. That's been part of the parlance all along. I just feel like people totally abandoned all the things they'd held to for for decades. Well, literally, I mean, when Obama was president, it was about 67 or 60, or around 70% or something of evangelicals poll said that if you don't have a good moral and spiritual character, you know, if, you, if you're not of that kind of disposition, that you can't be a good president. That flipped to 70% the other way once the other Trump way. was the nominee. I mean, yeah. just immediately. <laughs> I mean, overnight. I mean, that, I mean, that is astounding, right? Yeah. And, and I pushed Adam really hard on this. And I said, look, I, I get it, but man, this Republican Christian arguments about morale, I said, you know, John McCain, by all credit given to John McCain, was a non theistically oriented person, right? An atheist, probably. 
wasn't into all of that. Uh, then, then you voted for a Mormon, which a lot of you would teach in your Sunday school class was a part of a cult group that needs to be eliminated. Wasn't John and McCain, though, like, I mean, I mean, John McCain was a Baptist. I mean, he was, he was, yeah. I mean, he went to sure, church. Sure. But you know, like all the Baptists I know, that doesn't affect your sort of, he didn't orient his life around, um, a, a theological vantage point. Okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. Right. I, I mean, it was yeah. no, where it was for, I think it was for George W. Bush. Um, I'm not sure it was for, you know, Bob Dole, but you see what I'm getting at? Like this idea that you guys are advocating. So you made this move like, okay, McCain was all right. Then a Mormon and then Trump, like, come on, man. That, so that was my argument to, to Adam. I really, and he helped me to, to understand, understand this, um, that particular shift. That wasn't his particular holdup. Adam said, look, I didn't vote for those people. I didn't vote for McCain. I didn't vote for Romney. I'm not just, because I said, aren't you all just Republican shills here? I mean, let's just be, doesn't this prove the, prove the accusation? And, and he was honest and he said, not for him, which was really helpful. So his support, which I think he represents a larger group of people, really has, uh, I, I think it's four big categories. One of those is you need to really understand how much trauma and how much fear there was in evangel conservative evangelicals about the Obama administration and how terrified they were about a Clinton administration. It, I now understand how traumatized they were because that's how I feel about Donald Trump. But they felt like it was eight years that was so bad that you have to know where they were coming from. And the idea of Hillary Clinton, I, I mean, it's, I, I don't know what we would say. I, I guess you would say something like, well, if Steve Bannon then was going to run for office after Trump, like that, right? Like it was that bad. So I didn't fully understand how traumatized people in that community of, of think uh, of people, uh, how much they, they, they were traumatized by the Obama years. Now I will say, and I said in the podcast, I think you guys are totally buying a myth and a lie. And the difference between your fear of Obama and my fear of Trump is your thing was based on a lie and mine is based on his actual words and actions, right? So we disagreed on that, but it was a real deeply held fear. So that was one. Number two, he really did believe that the federal government needed a shakeup and it was worth it even if Trump is as bad as Trump has been to break up the uh, monopoly that certain people have on the federal government, that outsider argument. Uh, and this is, you know, I guess what you would say if people said, uh, oh, you're going to do a chemo treatment for your cancer. And people are like, here's the side effects that will happen. Adams in the camp that measured those side effects and said, they're worth it. So that's, that's powerful. And the third big one for Adam in particular was he felt that there was a call of, of, and from God for him to support Donald Trump. This was, I remember listening, he was cutting the grass, right? There was a, a moment the, where he's cutting the, the grass and he has a clear word from the Lord, word from the Lord. I mean, and, and it was interesting because he did say, look, you know, I don't, I'm not flipping about these kinds of things. Like he offered some qualifications about mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. these sort of things. And he, he was, he was not flipping about that. Like, he was not that, flipping about it. And what I appreciated about him was he said, and this was, I think in episode six, 
or five, five, six, maybe seven toward the end. I don't know that he would have been comfortable saying it early on because our friendship wasn't there yet, but I think he believed it, but I just think, you know, it, it was appropriate for the final conversations. He said, and look, I'm not sure that's a good thing, uh, that he was the president. So in other words, look, I'm not saying God wants Donald Trump to be president because Donald Trump's going to be a great president. I don't know the mind of God to know why, in his view, God wanted Donald Trump to be president. Maybe it's so. It, maybe it's part of a much larger plan, and it's going to cause the collapse of the USA. I don't know. That's not for me to know. I'm not. I'm not saying. And this is really helpful for me. He was saying, "I'm not saying I know why or that it was a good thing. I'm just saying it's something I know to be true for me that God called me to be a supporter of Donald Trump and that he was going to win the presidency. So, what comes from that, I'm not responsible for. Nor do I think is absolutely clear why that is. That was really helpful. Really Merry helpful. Christmas never came up. Oh, it came Merry up. Christmas I again. tried. I tried all the avenues I could. It kind of fits in that category of the trauma and how afraid um, Adam and others were about the Clinton administration really wanting to bring an end to religious freedom. I mean, there it's a view that they hold very deeply. I can tell you why they hold it and why they feel like the Clintons and the Clinton administration and the Obama administration were. There wasn't a war on Christmas per se, there was a war on religious freedom and religious people, and they felt it was important to uh, be protected from that. They absolutely, absolutely felt it. The Christmas thing or not was a, is a little, you know, that's a little packaging around all that, uh, but they were really deeply, deeply afraid of it. I feel like on all sides, yeah, we can get behind Merry Christmas. Everybody likes saying Merry. Even my Jewish friends are like, we love Christmas. So, you know, yeah, and, and so everybody so loves everybody loves the winning of the war on Christmas. They do. Well, the, everybody loves Christmas. Yeah, and and that's the thing I learned from Adam was it's because I would say like you know, here's all the times Obama said Merry Christmas. He's like, look, it's not the point. The point is they are really doing some things at a deep policy level that uh, are a real war on religious people. And would this be largely things like okay, if you're a Catholic hospital and through the Affordable Care Act, there are certain prerogatives you lose about birth control. Or if you're a private baker and you don't want to make cakes or, I mean, things on gay, lesbian, transgender things. I mean, are those most of the hot button issues where it's the idea that, uh, that there's a limit on expression of religious freedom because these sort of, these sort of grand sweeping policies around educational the Department of Education on bathrooms or, or Obamacare on contraception are just going to eat into the religious liberty of all sorts of nonprofit institutions that are trying to in, be oriented with some sort of Christian mission and message. It, it is. And, but I would say that um, the way I, I think Adam would put it is those are anecdotes that tell you about the problem. But the problem was the especially what Hillary Clinton had said. He says her entire professional life or public life, and I would say, and he would say specifically in the, la in the campaign, was the only way we're going to change public opinion on those matters, school choice, abortion, health care, all of that, the only way we're going to see the kind of change we want to see on those is if we 
see a change in religious narratives that give support to those ideas. So where we have to win this battle is not only at the policy level, but on the reasons why people hold to their policy positions and the reason they hold to them are religiously influenced. So we have to change religious narratives. Therefore, the federal government's going to be involved in changing religious narratives. And he played for me and sent me clips and quotes where Hillary Clinton said things that sounded like that. Like specifically, hey, if we're going to change the conversation about abortion in this country, we're going to have to change how Catholics think about abortion. That is a true thing if people are advocating to change views on abortion. That's a true thing. And you, yep, you're, you're right. You have to. But when he heard her say that and other people in, that, in, his, in his world heard her say that, they heard not just we're going to continue the same policy battle. They heard we're going to find a solution to why people keep holding this. And that is we're going to start interfering with religious conviction. So all of those, the Hobby Lobby case, all that stuff, those are all anecdotes that show that there's actually an agenda to change religious thinking. So all of us liberal types and progressive types would say, like, the federal government's not going to change your religious belief. You're going to be just fine believing whatever you want. They don't care. They, they would say very clearly, Adam would say and did say, I don't believe that to be true. I think it's, that's not true. They are going to change it. They even said they were. And people like you, Doug, that are supporting her are supporting uh, this agenda to, for the federal government to interfere in religion. So it's, it's intriguing, but it's the way I talk about, I talked about this, you know, the same thing. Like why is the federal government nosing around and giving money to religious institutions, uh, you know, for their schools and so on. So, so that, that's the, that's the, um, there, all of those, which you can write off each one of them as their own, they all created a context in which um, there was a deep fear about the federal government's interference. Is there some, do you think there's some irony in that, you know, okay, if you're voting for Donald Trump as a kind of shake up the system, mm -hmm. right? And even, I mean, it's, I forget what number of voters I heard it the other day. It was 60% or something of people that voted mm -hmm. for Trump thought he didn't have the temperament for the office or mm -hmm. wasn't, you know, but they voted for him for the, like, but when you, when you have somebody that maybe doesn't have some of the faculties yeah. to be the commander in chief, do you, do you think there's, there's this ironic status quo-ness to the vote because nothing gets done you know, like uh, in, in, in in any significant way. I mean, well, I can't remember a first year of a presidency where the president controlled both houses of Congress where so little got done, you know, so little significant. I mean, no, you could say that there's some things in the EPA and certain regulatory things that change, which could change back with the next administration. But, but, but as far as like a disruptive force, in many ways, you know, we get mm. continuing resolutions, we'll get things, you know, the... The deep state. I mean, people that are bureaucrat, people that are government uh, career service people who are not partisans by and large, who are people that, you know, care about public service and you know, some are Republicans. Some are, they're just going to keep running the government. And ultimately, it, it, this seems like the thing that's not going to shake up the system. Somebody that's this fitful, that can't really even seem to get along with their own party. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're you're on it, and I'm going to speak for Adam uh, a little out of my depth because we talked a bit about it, but I'm speculating more than these are quotes or my memory of his quotes. But I think this is what he would say: having an incompetent president would be a really good thing because the presidency has has grown to have too much power, and it would be a good thing 
in the long run to let the president, the field of the presidency go fallow for four years. Sort of think a Sabbath for the field, you know, let the, uh, rotate the crops and let the field go, go fallow. Uh, they would say that inactivity from the presidency is a good thing because it will push the other, uh, uh, systems in the United States, both the the populace as well as Congress, to actually step up and do its do its job. So I he might argue, I'm all for a presidency that is underperforming. That sounds like a great idea. So right, let's so let's try an exercise in empathy and understanding here. So saying just like how after the Nixon administration, there was some good government reform. People didn't want an imperial presidency. Some people, whatever you think of Jimmy mm-hmm. Carter's presidency, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people would say this is a reaction to mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. It's the imperial president. This guy's unassuming. He, 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 it's, I mean, I, it, that's kind of the argument then. That's Just the argument. as Nixon led to a, a, at least a season of concern about presidential over, overreach and government reform and things like that, that this could be akin to that. Yep. That's, that's the argument. Uh, and, and my, that's, that's, I think that's the point. And my pushback is that's a really bad idea at this point. I mean, I think it's like saying, Hey, I I think driverless cars are going to be fantastic, but right now I'm stuck driving. You know what I want to do? I just want to have somebody doesn't know how to drive, drive for a while. And that'll really perpetuate us toward, you know, uh, uh, driverless cars. No, it's not. It's going to cause accidents and it's going to cause real damage. And we, uh, we're, you don't shift from highly competent, engaged presidents to let's not have one. <laughs> that's a, that's a horrible idea. That would be my, that was my, that was my argument and pushback. Um, but he would have said, well, look, I don't think it's going to be so bad. And I will tell you, Adam's view is he doesn't know if the calculation they made at the time, uh, that he made, he and others would have made at the time that it's worth it, um, is actually worth it. Like it could get so bad that they would say, I thought it was worth it, but I don't anymore. He's totally open to that and said, said such things. So, so I think that's a, that, that's a real um, act of honesty. And I even told him, I said, look, I feel that way about the Obama administration. I was a big Obama supporter, but um, man, there were some real limitations in that, in, that, in that administration and in his way of leadership. And it brought some really good things, but it, it came with some other pieces as well. And I'm not sure that they're all so fine and dandy and great. I think there's a lot of limitations that we experience. So that's, that's fair. It was what my, was my argument. Like, yeah, you can, you know, it's, it's worth it. Uh, it was worth it to have. I just think next time we, I, th- I think we need to, to, to have a president for some period of time here. That's not, um, as inexperienced as our last two have been. Uh, I think it really caused some, I, I think it really caused I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts, projects I've got in the works. Being a Patreon sponsor is really just you being a patron of an art form you enjoy and are passionate about. So I invite you 
to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Stephen Rowe, Ben Crosby, John Snyder, and Charlotte Donlin. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. Several of my friends were saying that the tax cut and, and, the, and the structure of it, this is all just kind of helping the rich get richer and had some mm-hmm. cynical opinions about that. And, and in fairness, some Republican lawmakers did say this is about donors and getting something. I mean, th- there were statements on the record. Yeah, right. But right. but I that's, do think right. Like, it's not a conspiracy theory to suggest that. I I would argue right. There's decent economic evidence that supply side economics really hasn't worked. What it's done is exacerbated income inequality. It doesn't trickle down really. It blows up deficits. It it, it sort of takes money and bottlenecks it at the top because once you have so much money, you can't put it back into the economy, right? right? You can't buy a new Ferrari every day, right? You can't buy 50 Big Macs a day. You can't, there's just, it just doesn't go into the economy, right? Like it's the working class, middle class, poor, but these are people that actually, poor people actually spend all the money they have and make the economy That's right, go, that's right. right? Yeah. But don't you think, that, I mean, I was telling my friends, I, I, but you have to understand, I, I think a majority of people who are, who, who vote this way, believe that supply side economics work like there's enough of the narrative told right that you just don't look at the counter narrative yeah, right yeah no i'm wondering what do you see this equivalent to that on the left mm. like are, and are there things that you already named some of it i mean what do you think was the biggest prejudice you came up against in this conversation where you're like, okay this is an example where i can see some liberal group think that and i expressed it very clearly we had one episode where we switched roles and he got to ask me questions, basically saying, hey, liberal, explain to me how, a, you know, a, a pastor, a God-fearing guy could be a liberal, right? And how could you be a Hillary Clinton supporter of all things, right? Of all the kinds of liberals, that one. Why, why her? Why were you with her the whole time? So, uh, and it was you know, it was pretty obvious the, 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 glaring, the glaring holes in, in my kind of theory, which was probably best summed up in the idea that um, there are inequalities in thinking and in practice in the United States that the federal government specifically, not even state government or local governments, the federal government should be in the business of solving, that the that we should be create federal government should be creating different sets of conditions in which people can act. And that is specifically something the federal government should do. And I want the federal government to be engaged in such activities. So, and I'm almost a blanket. Uh, I, I almost approach that with the same tenor that on the economic issues that um, supply side conservatives do where they say essentially we need this to be true because it's the root of our 
presuppositions, right? I don't know if it is, but I really need it to be true. You know, mama needs a seven on the next roll. Uh, I sort of felt that way about uh, the arguments I was making. Like, I really do need this to be true because um, I don't see an other option for how we're going to solve the problems in this country uh, in our current state if the federal government's not, not more engaged in leveling the system and in having an opinion about how and who we should be in the country. So I think that's sort of a, a default. Now I'm a I've become an economic leftist, right? So I'm totally into you know minimum minimum uh, base salary paid to everybody in the country by the government, and uh, so I'm totally down that down that road. Um, but I don't think that rep- represents most liberals, um, and uh, it's really a reactionary kind of. Uh, economic philosophy that doesn't have to defend itself with the facts quite yet. But broadly speaking, it is, uh, I think the federal government is a really important, as an important role to play for those for whom the system does not work. And I want a strong federal government that's going to do some real interfering. And you would say that where, where that might be a prejudice is that that's something that you, you're probably not looking at other models regularly. Like, okay, where are their public private partnerships? And because I, I would guess the place to look, right. If you were making that argument would be what Western Europe, like mm-hmm. you, you look at, you know, um, I remember Richard Rory at the end of his life. I heard him on entitled opinions. You know, this is a guy who lost, uh, who thought philosophy should have kind of minimalist gains and or minimalist kind of objectives. And he said, well, I just think philosophers can help the rest of the world try to become like the United States and make the United States become a little more like Scandinavia. <laughs> but but you could argue, right, that, I mean, you would you say that, that certain place, places like that in Europe where, I mean, Scotland just, I don't know what life in Scotland is like, but they just are, there's legislation for a base pay kind of system. But you'd say, right, that, that, that yeah. your, your, your model for this would be certain places in Western Europe, which are free market capitalistic systems, but then try to mitigate the, win, the, 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 the drastic win and losses mm. by a social safety net mm. that. Yeah, I would actually say, uh, my argument would be to that, to that economic, uh, suggestion that I would like to make to the world is, no, we don't need to look to Scandinavia. We don't need to look to Canada. We need to look to how we already do this in the United States. So I know this isn't what the podcast is about, but I get sort of fired up about this. Consider, I like this. this is cons- good. consider this for a moment. Of all the pe- of 320 million people in the United States, the number of people who pay for their own lives is teeny. If you start taking out family members that don't earn enough money for their own life, children, husbands that are stay-home husbands, then you throw in retirees who are on some sort of social security benefit. Then you throw in people who work, have some other kind of a retirement, because, uh, but they're not of retirement age yet. So you throw in the military or other people who retire, people who have disabilities, people who uh, work in systems in which are funded by the federal government or state or local government. The number of people who fund their lives off the private sector alone and, and they pay for, it's teeny. We already run the social state that we're talking about. I'm just simply saying do for everyone what we do for children, retired adults, people on federal pensions, and people in the military. Let's do it just forever. Just take the last third, put us all in the same camp, and make that the basis for how we function. So I don't think we need to go look at small 
uh, one-off examples in Scandinavia, I think we can say, well, what would we do if we didn't have Social Security? What would we do if federal employees didn't have pensions? What would we do? I mean, why do people argue so hard about taking care of our of our uh, soldiers when they come back from war with with health care and with guaranteed retirement? Like, it's because that's how the whole system works. So there's this myth that, well, most people pay for their own lives. No, they don't. Most people are living off of somebody else uh, in some deliberate way. And then you put in farmers. Good grief. And you start looking at federal programs that support people's lives, both those that are in a certain economic earning and people in certain industries, farmers and all the people who who live off of the federal uh, uh, programs and, and are supported by that. And it's a myth that the free market is what's driving our country anyway. So, uh, so that's the argument, right? Is no, we're already doing it. Let's just finish the loop. We've got a, we've got one. So it's like on an Apple watch when you're, you trying to close your ring, you know, and you've got 30% left to close on the ring and get up and walk around for your activity level. Let's just close the ring on this thing and be set. That's, that's my argument. I crush um, my ring almost daily. I and, exceed my ring. And it comes um, up and tells you like, Hey, way to go. We're going to Doug, what is your move goal? I don't know. It's it's only it's whatever's in there. I should look on it. Uh, it's it's whatever's in the in the presets. I've never Mine changed. Seven seventy. Wow. Yeah. Well, and you're winning right now because if you take this hour, you're going to be on your feet, and I'm sitting ADHD, on a dude. sitting ADHD, on a broken chair. So, yeah. is, so I, from what you're saying, it sounds like it would be a mistake when Hillary Clinton said in response to Bernie Sanders, well, "Hey, this is preposterous. This free college, everybody. I don't want to give." college to donald trump's kids that kind of means testing thing versus education is kind of basic right of the citizenry yeah i mean you, so that this is i guess where you would be saying that that where the democratic party already cedes a lot of grounds to this kind of to a narrative which you see is sort of makes a bigger deal of the free market and its impact than than maybe is is actually in reality on the ground yeah i think it's i think that's the way it is and uh you know this is it's done in small, small measure now in Alaska. It used to be done more where everybody who lives in Alaska gets a check every September, October. It comes off of the revenues of oil that's owned by the state and they all get a check. They don't all pay. You know, they get $2,400 now. It used to be more than that. Every person in every family. Families will bring, because that's the way you're going to live there. And so, and what we do in this country, which is just madness, is we spend more money keeping track of the people we give money to through programs than the money we give to the people in the programs. If you just said, we don't care who gets the money and what you do with it, there would be enough money for everyone to have a guaranteed minimum payment in this country. Uh, that's the crazy part about the whole thing. And then you can take people, uh, if you want to, who shouldn't get it and take them out. But we don't do that with Social Security, so I'm guessing we wouldn't do that with something like this, right? No one says, hey, Grandma, you you're sitting on this amount of wealth. So even though your social security payment is supposed to be $1,800 a month, we're going to knock it down to 300 because you don't need it and you're spending it at the casino. No one does that to their grandma, but we do it to people that are, you know, getting WIC or getting, uh, on child support or child, uh, uh, uh payment. So you, a universal basic income is a really significant thing to have in, um, in our society. And I'm guessing we're going to get to it someday or someone's going to at least make the damn argument, um, which, you know, I'm going to say a big Hillary supporter for a whole lot of reasons, not because of her economic theory though. It, it was, that was, that was not the, that was not the thing I was a supporter of her. That's not why I was a supporter. I read a, a book review recently 
by Rowan Williams. It was in the New Statesman, I think. And it was a book, he was reviewing a book, which I have not yet read, by Jonathan John Milbank and uh, I think Andre Papps called The Politics mm-hmm. of Virtue. Mm-hmm. And he says in this, that this is a book about meta crises, capitalism, democracy, nation state politics, modern culture and education. All of these are living out a meta crisis of some sort. All of them are grounded in illusion mm. and contradiction, whether it be the simultaneous overproduction and underprovision that typifies the capitalist system, the symbiosis of oligarchy and majoritarianism that modern mm. democracy exhibits, the nihilistic void at the center of modern cultural life, or the mixture of nationalist rhetoric and globalist mm. economic homogenization on the chaotic stage of international relations. Now, Williams is, it's a good critical review. I mean, and, and nice. I think mm-hmm. he, he thinks more of the authors pointing out of the meta crises than necessarily all their solutions or all their alternatives. But is, is there a crisis around the liberal project today? I mean, I just got a book in the mail today called The, uh, the Third Reconstruction by William Barber and Jonathan Wilson Hartsgrove that somebody recommended to me talking about sort of the corporization of American democracy and 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 the need for a spiritual renewal mm. to stand up to some of this. I mean, I it just it seems that on, in lots of different sectors of American cultural life and Western cultural life, there's suspicion about the liberal democratic project. Yeah, yeah, I think there should be. So you think that's not ill-founded? <laughs> no, I, <laughs> that's a freebie. Thank you. I'll take that anytime. There you go. There you go. No, I don't think that critique is ill-founded. That 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 there needs to be um, a reconsideration of what the liberal project is, because what we're what we're dealing with, to, just to be fair to everyone, including the people who are supporters of Donald Trump, is in the last thirty years, the global economic landscape has changed. No theory from the middle 18, middle 19, or middle 20th century is going to serve our current stage or the next century. It's not going to serve it. It shouldn't. Those, the conditions that were on the ground that made economic theory make sense, be it liberal or conservative or supply side or, or uh, other, other versions, they're no, they're not going to supply what we need. We're going to have to come up with some new ones and we need some new theorists. And the thing that the liberal project is not very good at currently is championing people to have new ideas. It's shocking how much downward pressure there is from a social elite. And that's one of the things that about the Donald Trump uh, phenomena that I think is meaningful. Uh, I think what he's done with it is is terrible, but it is a pushback on the elites. And that's one of my critiques of the Obama administration was that they basically said, hey, you can trust us. We're all smart people. We're, we, we come from the class of those that you can trust. And, uh, that's, and, and, you know, that's, that's on, you know, that's on in the morning and then the afternoon, this democracy needs all of you. You all, you all need to be in it, but it was an identity politics that was being played, not just on racial identity and economic identity, but also on some kind of version of intellectual identity. And if liberalism was a populist movement, which I'm no Bernie Sanders fan, and I don't know that's what, that's what he's arguing for. I, that's not what I hear out of him. Um, I think we need something that's more liberal that is also grassroots and also is comes from some deep risky experiments and not liberalism that comes from some sort of belief in experts and and scientific theory um, at a at a at a at a removed level, but scientific theory that comes out of um, sociology. I think we I think liberals need our sociologists is what I, is what I sort of the the, the shorthand for that. 
I had somebody on the podcast last week, Glenn Scrivener, who he's a Church of England clergy person. He's Australian by birth, but really interesting guy mm. and did a really interesting Advent sort of Christmas film that has gotten millions of views in the UK. And just a, a really interesting person and has an interesting ministry in England. And he said that in his church that, which is a sort of center-right theologically, it's, an, it's a self-identifying kind of evangelical Anglican church. There is no majority. I mean, people are just as likely to be in the conservative Tory party mm. with labor or in the liberal Democrats. Yes. It's just, it's not at all, they're evangelical Protestants and it's not at all, it's completely, no, my guess is in your church in Minneapolis, there's not, is there, is that wide of a spread? No, no, there's not. There's, you know, the, there's, there's versions of moderates to more liberalish, and then maybe some anarchists thrown in there. Um, but no, and my guess is in Adam's church, it's, there's not a big spread either. Yeah, it might be might be Texas. more than mine. I, he's not pastoring that church anymore. The church he goes to, they might they might have more spread there than than we do. The the the, the more activist a community is, even a church or religious community, the more activist that community is, the less diversity there is in the in in uh, um, philosophical perspective around issues of economy and government and so on. It it. They're self-selecting <laughs> groups, and uh, so I can see why. If somebody wants a really diverse community, you want to keep your hands clean of action in the world because the action you do pushes you to have an opinion about things. Uh, and we're a bit of an activist crowd, so yeah. So I mean, because I, I a big critique you hear about American society, and I, it does ring true on some levels, right? Like I think the tribalism is rough, right? Because it leads mm-hmm. to communities, it leads to the post-truth society where everyone's got their own facts, you know, not just their own opinions, but they think they've mm-hmm. got their own facts and at least mm-hmm. to more hostility and more demonization. And yet I hear you saying, well, on one level though, if you want to be a force for good in the world as a, as a religious community, you're going to have a little more tribalism. Is that a good thing or a bad? I mean, how do you, is there a mitigating kind of framework where you can, where you can, that stands in a gap like that, or do you have to choose kind of one or the other? So I've changed my view on this recently, um, and it's been helped along by a theory that I can't totally remember the exact phrase from. Maybe somebody will remember it and can send it to us. But uh, it's the it's the diversity community paradox, or something like that. And the idea is, and this comes from sociologists, that the more community you want or develop, you end up with less diversity. Um, and you know, the, uh, the old church growth people used to say, look, if you want your church to grow, you have to go for homogeneity. That's the only way it works. Donald McGavern, the, the homogeneous unit principle, right? The homogeneous unit principle. He McGavern, that was his thing. And he was, I think he was onto something. And this is one of the reasons I argue that big, that's just another one of the problems with big churches. All uh, right. Like of, of all the things, I, th- I think I think the uh, the verdict is in uh, that the big churches are are, are are less helpful than we want them to be. So I think the answer is um, to try to get to something where the tribal kind of commitment that you have in a group is connected to others that also hold some sort of a sense of tribal connection. So the intertribal connectivity is the future, not some sort of a, of a, 
of a larger container that has a little bit of everything. So there's a there's a vision, there's a melting pot vision in our in our myth of the United States that just doesn't prove to be true. I think we'd be much better off saying like the way that a family or a household in a neighborhood can be engaged in their neighborhood without having everyone in the neighborhood move into their house. Uh, that's the model that we're probably going to end up getting to is you find your place of connectivity for community and you have practices that help that community be connected with others that have a different set of practices that make them a community. So inter-community connection more than intra-community diversity is is probably the direction things are going to go. And you can sort of see this in the story of your own life, right? You've got this, you've got a community that's a little more homogenous in its activist commitments. And yet you also, as the leader of that community, are t- connecting with Adam and all sorts of people through. Yeah, we're trying and, to do that. And, and, and what, yeah. what churches have going for them, which is a really great thing, is they're one way to form a community. But most people that go to churches, they're also part of other communities. They may not think of them this way, but they are. They work somewhere. They live in a neighborhood. They might go to a school. They have a family. If you thought about helping people that when they're part of your church community, in this case, in this conversation, you could start with any one of them and say, well, hey, one of the things we want to help you do here is to connect this community's passions in life with all these other communities you're a part of. And can you help the rest of us to bring those other communities you're a part of so that we understand what's important to those communities as this one. So what matters to you at your work? Can you tell people what matters for you at at work so that we all understand this? Well, that would be really helpful. Instead, what people think is when I'm in this community, I'm going to leave all the rest of that at the door. And this church community is supposed to be the one place where all are represented. Like it's just a bad version of a community in my view. It's just, uh, it's not, it's not, it's not useful, possible, interesting. One in which they say, all of a, I have seven primary communities that I'm a part of in my life, from my bowling club to my family to where I work to the neighborhood that I'm in uh, uh, to these online communities I'm on. And I want to share what's important in those communities with all the rest of you. If you did, if a pastor or church leaders learned how to do community asset mapping and saw every person in their church as being members of multiple communities, they would already see the network of interconnected tribal communities that we're already a part of. And then we could start living in the reality that already exists and not thinking we're supposed to create a new one. Well, I think people that want to kind of move towards that understanding of reality, one place they could start is the Untrump podcast, because you model <laughs> a bunch of things there that I think are incredibly uh, helpful. That's uh, professional-grade marketing, my man. Thank you. There, there, there you go. Doug, thanks for, for spending some time talking about the podcast and what you're doing in your you're church there. and life. My pleasure. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Doug for coming on the podcast. You can find out more about him 
at DougPaget.com. And do check out his podcast, Untrumped. You're not going to find anything like it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. And until next time, my friends, fare thee well.